0: Good morning everybody. Well, it's almost lunchtime, so it's better to be good, Bill. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you all coming out on a beautiful, not doing that R-word yet, uh, Saturday morning. Uh, I would like to introduce you to the mastermind behind this program. This is Mr. Bill Jamerson. He's come to us all the way from that northern state of Michigan, and I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you, Leslie. Wonderful to visit your town. I went swimming in the health park this morning at the pool and learned about old Hickory Barbecue, the, where the locals go. Rooting for Kentucky last night. Today we're going to celebrate the CCC Boys, uh, one of the forgotten chapters in American history. I say forgotten because so many people don't know about them. If they did, we'd have 300 people here, if this was a program about World War II. But... They've, Hollywood's never made a movie about the CCCs. They've made hundreds of movies about World War II, but they were the greatest generation before they went into the war. The CCC was Roosevelt's first piece of legislation when he came into office in March of '33. It received bipartisan support. There was a generally recognized need. We had to do something to get young people off the streets. In our big cities, you had you know, rapid unemployment. One out of four people were unemployed and these young men couldn't get work and uh, there were gang issues and and what they called juvenile crime issues. So the idea was to create a program to take them off the streets, put them in work camps under the supervision of the army. Now each camp was run by these unemployed World War I officers like your father. One fellow told me the first day at camp, the captain said, men, I'm here because I needed a job. You're here because you needed a job. I'm gonna show you respect, but I want some respect in return. They all came from the unemployment lines. No one looked down on each other. They had wonderful relationships between the officers and the enrollees. They were called enrollees. They were also called the C's, plural, okay? Now to qualify to get into the C's, you had to be 17 to 25 years of age, single, from a family on relief or a very poor farm family, and in good health. Uh, Not everyone got in. Every county had a quota. There was one woman from the welfare agency that interviewed the men. If you came from a family with a lot of kids, you had a better chance to get in. Why? Because they were paid a dollar a day, $30 a month, and $25 was sent home to the families directly. They never saw that money. And for you young folks in the audience, a dollar a day doesn't sound like much, but you could buy five gallons of gas for a dollar. You could buy a candy bar for a nickel, a pair of shoes for a buck and a half, a cotton dress for a little girl for 20 cents. Your money went a long way. So over its nine-year run, uh, there were 93,000 young men here in Kentucky that worked in the Corps. Nationwide, 2.6 million. In forty-seven states. That's between 1933 and 1942. The average C, that's like what they like to be called, C's, the average C had six to seven dependents. So if you do the math, 2.6 million times six, well, that's 15 million people. That's about 12% of America's population in 1935. So one of the first points I like to make today is the Cs was a relief program more than it was a work program. Yes, it gave these young men work, and we're going to talk about that. But the money was sent home. One fellow said, well, my dad was a blacksmith. He had plenty of work, but nobody could pay him. Another told me he was an orphan living with his mother, his grandmother. She used the money to pay the back taxes on our farm. (laughs) But I'll never forget the elderly man who came up after one of my talks. He gripped my hand, and he wouldn't let go for like three minutes. I wasn't in the seas. But my brother was, that $25 a month put food in the table for my 11 brothers and sisters. It kept us alive. I'm telling you, it kept us alive. I don't know what we would have done. Tears were coming down his cheeks. That's happened a half dozen times. He said his mother had enough food left over to make a pot of bean soup for the neighbor. Because a man's wife had died, he was raising three kids. He had no work. They were starving. Relief was only for single mothers with children. Think about that. And the mother would take the wagon down to the relief building with three or four kids trailing behind. They'd give her a box of potter milk, some government cheese, some lard, flour, sugar, can of salt pork, you know, beans, lots of beans. And they'd just send her on her way. I mean, it was pretty slim pickings. You want some fresh fruit, you go climb an apple tree. You want some meat on the table, follow those rabbit tracks. I think most of you know the deer population, turkey population, was wiped out in Kentucky in the Depression. You know, people were pulling roots and cooking the roots for vegetables. Uh, It was, I don't want to paint too bleak a picture, three out of four people were doing okay. They were getting by. But that one out of four who was out of work, we just didn't have Social Security. There was no unemployment insurance, no food stamps, nothing except relief for the single mothers with children, and charity, the soup kitchens that the churches provided. So uh, this is the backdrop of the seas. Now, when these guys came into camp, they issued them new clothing, work boots, dungarees, those are blue jeans, uh, khaki uniforms in summer, olive drab in winter, overcoats, sweaters, hats, mittens, gloves. Many of these guys had never had a new pair of shoes in their life. I met a fellow in Georgia. He said when he showed up at the bus stop with all the C's, he said, none of us had a pair of shoes. We were all barefoot. Whitey Iverson, a CC up in Iowa. When I went to the C's, I thought I was checking into a high-class hotel, running water, indoor plumbing, electricity. Oh, boy. Some of these fellows had never bathed. They'd... They stunk so bad they'd physically have to drag these guys into the showers and scrub them down with GI brushes. They'd never been in a shower. They issued them toilet kits. One fellow took the toothbrush out. This is a true story. He did not know what it was for. He started brushing his eyebrows. It's kind of sad if you think about it. 20 years old, never brushed his teeth. Well, they had a full-time doctor in camp, part-time dentist, yanked those rotten teeth. They taught him good hygiene. This is why when I met these fellows in 1992 for the first time, they shook my hand, best year of my life, turned my life around, turned me from a boy to a man. They were so, so grateful. You see, I was a documentary filmmaker up in Michigan, and I was making these films. You've heard of Ken Burns? They called me the Ken Burns of Michigan. That's right. I made a dozen documentaries up there. And I, uh, I had a friend who was at a museum. He called me. and said, you got to take a look at this roll of film. And it was an eight millimeter Kodachrome film. It showed these young men planting trees. I said, well, that's a C's. That'd make a great documentary. So I went to our CCC museum and I, I called them. I said, do, they, do these guys ever get together? First Saturday in every June. Well, 500 of them were there. And so I went and met them and Shook my hand. They were so grateful, and they told me their stories. I said, I'm going to make a movie about these guys. And I begged, borrowed, and stole, and I did. It aired on 58 stations, public TV stations in 19 states, which isn't bad for a little local yokel, you know, film about Michigan. You see, no one had made a film about them. Remember what I said in the beginning? They never got there, do? Little guy up in Michigan. I make a little documentary. It airs on 58 stations. Five years ago, Ken Burns made a program about the Great Depression, and he had an hour long on the C's. So they're slowly getting their due. Well, I went on to make a dozen other films, but the C's kept inviting me to their state conventions. So I was getting invitations to go to Wisconsin and Illinois and, and Minnesota, and I'd throw my kids in the car with a big box of VHS videos and sell those darn videos to recoup my money. It took me 10 years to get my money back from that film. That's why people don't make documentaries. <laughs> but I made wonderful friendships. And I took their stories, and I turned them into songs, and uh, I ended up writing songs for them. I like to share a song that, was, that I didn't write, but I found this song written by a CC boy, Clive Kilgore from Nebraska. And I would love to share this song because it shows their gratitude. These guys just wanted to work so bad. And the money was going home to their folks, putting food on the table for their brothers and sisters. It meant so much to them. From hills and plains throughout all the land, People are singing a joyful refrain, smiling and working, a merry youthful band, till happy days are here once again. With joyful voice, we all rejoice for see, see, see. Up to the skies, our praises rise, for our great country, we believe this land of the free is on the road to prosperity. Hip, hip, hooray for the NRA, Franklin D.N.C.C.C. Hip, hip, hooray! Yeah, these, uh, these guys were so grateful to come into camp. One of the friends who appeared in my film became a very dear friend of mine, and I wrote a book about him. I used to meet him at McDonald's. He lived a couple hours away, but he was on a highway, and I would see him once a month, every two or three months. He was 16 years old, growing up in Detroit. He owned one pair of shoes, and they'd fallen apart so bad that they flapped when he walked. He said, I glued them, I taped them, they still fell apart. His mother couldn't afford 20 cents for a cobbler to repair those shoes. The dad had left, gone off to California, riding the rails. She was waiting tables. They were broke. He dropped out of high school because the kids were laughing at him. He was humiliated. He's outside of a shoe store. And out on the sidewalk, there's a table full of shoes for sale. He finds a pair his size, takes a pair Steals him, runs down the street, cuts into the alley. Well, there was a beat cop in the alley having a cigarette. He was busted. And he had been busted before, a few months earlier for stealing. So he was in trouble. But the officer took pity on him. He said, you're a good kid. You belong in the CCC. Well, the judge agreed and gave him a choice. Six months in jail or you can volunteer for the CCC. Well, he chose to volunteer. Well, he went out to his two-week initiation camp. He got his uniform, his shots, and physical and all that. Came back home. He was in town for a couple days. Now he has his uniform on, and he's saying goodbye to all the merchants he grew up with as a little boy. You know, goodbye, Mr. Jones, the butcher, and the baker, and so forth. Now he's headed up to the produce market to say goodbye to Mrs. Rosenberg, a short Jewish woman who sold the best fruit in the market. The apples and pears she handled came wrapped in tissue paper and were spotless. She used to save the tissues and flatten them on the counter. After she collected a neat pile, she put them in the garbage. My brother and I stopped by on the way home from school when we were little boys, and we used to pick through her garbage to find those tissues. We gave them to my mother, who hung them on a nail for toilet paper. When I stopped by, she picked up two apples. Nick, I'm gonna miss you, take these on your trip. Oh, you don't need to do that. I just came to say goodbye. Take them. You'll need them on the train. We chatted a few minutes about the season. Then I said goodbye. After a few steps, I turned around. Mrs. Rosenberg, there was something I always wanted to ask you. What's that? When I was a little boy, I used to go through your garbage. Well, I know. Well, sometimes when I was going through your garbage, you threw out fruit and it was still good. What'd you do that for? She smiled. I put it there for you and your brother. I know, but why? She sighed. Because you never begged like the other boys. You never begged. She came around the table and cupped my face with her hands. Take care of yourself, Nick. Come see me when you get back. Her loving eyes were like dark pools upon water. That's why I wrote the book. I couldn't make up the stories this man was telling me. He had an iron trap memory. He was in camp for two years. By the way, it was two six-month terms in the seas for one year. However, in 1937, they relaxed the rules. You could re-up for a second year. So he was in camp for two years. He remembered every detail, every bully, every story. So it's a coming-of-age story. Uh, is a tough sergeant. There's a bully that picks on him. The nickname of the bully is Farmer. He likes to argue about John Deere and McCormick tractors. And there there really was a character who did this, okay? I gave him a girlfriend in the book, and I called her Betty. And when he got a rough draft of the book, he called me up. My first wife's name was Betty. How'd you know? (laughs) And he said the relationship turned out just the way it did in real life as it was in the book. Now, I'm not going to tell you what happened, but I'll tell you this. There was a camp, Camp Gary Owen, a half mile northeast of Owensboro, and a CC fellow could date a local girl in town, take her to the movies, go to the fair, go to the swing dances, date her for six months, date her for a year, but her parents would not let him step foot in their home. Not always. Sometimes they were allowed to go in. These guys would go to church with their girlfriends and go home for Sunday dinner. But most likely than not, they were not welcome in the homes. It was just kind of an understanding. A woman in Florida told me the C's worked on the family farm. And when they came in the morning to announce their arrival, they'd come up on the porch. And they wouldn't knock on the front door. They would get on their knees and knock on the floorboards of the porch. You see, they didn't think they were worthy enough to knock on the front door. I could do a whole program on this, but put yourself in the shoes of a farmer back then before you pass judgment. Why are my tax dollars paying for those no good bums from, from Louisville to come out here and work and build this road out here? I should have that work if anybody has that work. And I lost my two best farm hands to the seas. And Saturday night those C.C. boys, those cross-country crooks, while well, one of them stole a car in town and ditched it out in a cornfield, At the tavern Saturday night, those CC boys got in a big fight over over girls with the local fellows. They're gang members, I'll tell you. They're no good bums. And they want to date my daughter? Not in a million years. You see, they had a lot of reasons for not liking those CC boys. So they were not always welcome. And they gave them bad nicknames. But let me tell you the good news. The C's won them over with their Good Samaritan Acts. You know, I was in Vincennes, Indiana, uh, just on Monday night, and a fellow in the audience said, well, he was a 7-year-old boy. The C's worked on the family farm. He said they built five, eight, five miles of terraces on a 60-acre farm. He said the C's were up there surveying the property, and they were looking through their little you know, telescopes, and they looked, and There's a there's a pond over there, and they saw some kids drowning they found a little rowboat, someone had left the rowboat, and they rowed out, and, and the darn thing was sinking. Well, they ran down, their lickety-split, they saved two out of three of the kids. The two-year-old survived because his diaper filled up with air and kept them floating. One of them they couldn't save. A woman up in Hinkley, Minnesota, told me how her four-year-old brother wandered away from the family home one summer night was lost in the woods. The mother was frantic. They called in the seas. They found that little boy at three o'clock in the morning, covered with mosquito bites. A woman in Minnesota, I'm sorry, Wisconsin, trapped in a blizzard trying to get to the hospital. She's in labor, ready to have a baby. The snow plows are stuck. ADCs went out there with their shovels. They got out of the hospital with a half hour to spare. Wonderful stories. I could do a whole program on this. When there was a fire, flood, blizzard, the flood of 37, you all know about that. There were 4,000 CCCs out there in the rescue efforts, in the cleanup efforts, in the directing traffic, 4,000 spread over, you know, four or five states. About 10 years ago, I was up in Portsmouth, Ohio, and a CCC fellow told me the story, and I couldn't believe it. He says, we were on our boats, rowboats, we were pulling people off of roofs, off the houses. And this one woman wouldn't get off the house. Come on, lady, get in the boat. Come on, get in here. I can't, I can't, I tell you. I got my husband strapped into the attic down below me. I can't leave his body. I need it for insurance purposes. She refused to leave that body. That was her only hope for income. Amazing stories. Cleanup efforts are pretty awful in floods, but... That's how the seas won over the locals. So those bad nicknames, cross-country cockroaches, those became disappearing, okay? The worst nickname, by the way, was Woodtick. They hated that name, Woodtick. I heard the same story from three or four guys at different camps, and it was the same story. We were walking by a farmhouse, there were children playing in the front yard. The mother comes out of the house, Shoes the children in the house, okay, and then turns, wood ticks, get out of here, you filthy wood ticks. <laughs> what do we do? One woman told me that when she was a little girl, her mother told her, don't even look at them. Close your eyes when they walk by. One woman told me that she used to hide her dowels behind her back when the CC boys would walk by. Because yeah, they were always walking by the farms and going off to projects and stuff. Yeah. But as I said, those nicknames only survived in the early days. There were always farmers who never liked them, okay? Uh, but it was, it was not necessarily them. It was Roosevelt that they didn't like in the socialist policies, okay? But the Cs, they begrudgingly recognized that, hey, 98% of these guys are good. A couple bad apples, you don't judge the whole, you know, bushel by. Well, I was up in Wisconsin at a CC Museum. And on the wall there was a poem that was nicely framed. And I looked at that poem and the name of the poem was Woodtick. Huh? It was written by a CC boy. So I turned it into a song, and I just want to sing a couple of verses. It goes on and on and on. Well they call us lousy wood ticks who love to drink and fight, but it's where the CCs are when fires break out at night. We are the most unruly crowd the Lord has ever made. But when the flood breaks or the dam, it's CeCe, grab your spade. They say we drive our trucks too fast and make a lot of noise. When some trouble comes our way, it's called the CeCe boys. They say we're non-supporting and on the relief rolls. But it's hello, Mr. CeCe man, when we vote at the polls. Oh, call me Cedar Savage, I don't pay it no mind. Call me a brush monkey, you'll never hear me whine. Call me a stump jumper, it won't bother me a bit. But when you call me Woodtick, it puts me in a fit. Please don't call me Woodtick. Job number one here in Kentucky was working with farmers. I don't need to tell you about how bad the soil was eroded. These farmers had over uh, farmed the land. They they weren't aware of crop rotation. They weren't aware of strip farming, uh, letting land lay fallow, fertilizing techniques. It was, uh, they were in pretty rough shape. There were big gullies out there. Well, imagine you're, you're in a small town like Hartford and you pick up your newspaper. There's a little article. Soil conservation and CCCs will be offering soil erosion control services on, the, on farms in, you know, Macon County, Du Bois County, whatever county you're in. Come on down to the Soil Conservation Office and sign up your name, and we will provide those free services. So you sign up, and Farmer Jones, well, a week later, a truck pulls up with a soil conservation officer. A, Uh, a CC officer and a couple enrollees, and those young men survey your property. They've taken a week-long surveying course, and it's basically an elementary surveying, but they create a topographical map of your farm. And the farmer takes them around and shows them everything. They go back and and create this map, and then they identify all the needs. They say, well, we're going to repair these four or five gullies over here. We're going to build an earthen dam over here. Uh, we're going to uh, plow this field, put down some crushed lime to sweeten the soil, add some fertilizer. Um, we're going to build some ponds over here. Here's a pond. There's, we're going to move this fence over here. We're going to uh, clean these ditches. They use drag line to clean those farm ditches. And so a week or two later, a truck pulls up with 15 to 20 young men, and they're going to work on your farm for two weeks or two months for free. And I mean, they did real quality work. When they filled in a gully, they put down posts, put in fencing, brought in truckloads of stone and covered it with soil. I mean, and when they put up fences, those fence posts were in concrete, okay? It was quality workmanship. They built culverts, they built bridges. There was no fee. The only charges was if you, if you bought an outhouse, those were $25. Those were built by the WPA, or, or the fencing material, you had to pay for that. Uh, by the way, uh, I neglected to mention the National Recovery Act was the umbrella organization with all these what they call alphabet soup agencies. And there are too many to talk about today. There was the National Youth Administration, Public Works Administration, and they go, So on and on and on and on. But the two big ones was the WPA, which some of you may have had dads in, and the CCC. The Workers' Progress Administration employed about 2.5 million young men between 1935 and 1939. Those were for the older men who worked at home, and they went into town, and they built libraries, post offices, beautiful schools, city parks, airports, roads, Dug sewer lines, infrastructure, new sidewalks. But they worked in the towns, and they went home to their wife and kids. The C's were residential work camps, okay? 200 men in every camp with a couple dozen officers. Okay, so I want to differentiate. Sometimes people confuse. Oh, the CCC's built a beautiful school. No, that's the WPA. Basically, if it was out of town, it was the C's. So... um, But anyway, getting back to work in the farms, they also brought in speakers. Soil conservation officers who came into the local towns and gave slideshow presentations in the the auditoriums. And they talked about crop rotation, strip farming, fertilizing techniques, and passed out printed information. You know, this is all new government research trying to aid the farmer. The third thing they did was to take people on field trips. You pick up your newspaper. Uh, the campus hosting a field trip next Thursday, meet at the CC camp. We're going to go visit a drag line project, you know, how to clean out ditches, um, a soil bank leveling project. Soil bank is the, the piles of dirt you get after making a ditch, okay. Uh, ditching by dynamite, you know, uh, building a bridge and head wall, um, a tile reconstruction project, Okay, so you'd go to a half dozen farms and see what those farms were doing. And they'd they'd treat you to lunch at the CC camp. So it was really a three-part effort. Number one, boots on the ground, working on your farm. Number two, bringing in speakers. And number three, taking you out to area farms. And that had a great impact on, on hundreds and hundreds of farmers here in Kentucky. However, some farmers did not take them up on that. Some farmers would rather go broke, and, and many of them did. So, uh, again, it just depended on how proud they were. Remember, people, the people were proud in the Depression. They were, the people were too proud to accept relief. That was, a, that was one of the main reasons behind the seeds. You know, some people, they would rather starve than accept relief from the government. They distrusted the government. You know, America was founded on principles of self-reliance, self-government, self-respect. Who ever heard of relief? I mean, we take it for granted today because so many people were, everyone's on entitlements. But, you know, these are our forefathers. These farmers, I don't want those CCs. One fellow in North Carolina told me how his, uh, his dad had help from the seeds. They were working on his farm for two months. They plowed the fields. They built ponds. They did all these wonderful things. He started with 75 acres and a horse and a plow. When he retired, he had 550 acres. I said, well, how did he get all that? Oh, he bought up all the neighbors. They didn't use the seas. They were too proud. Okay, they all failed. So I don't want to paint this hunky-dory picture that the seas were embraced by everyone. No, there was a lot of still resentment out there by those. But, but again, they did so many good Samaritan deeds that the, people recognized the good that they were doing. Probably the most visible thing the C's did in Kentucky were building the state parks. Mammoth Cave you all know about. They called them the Gopher Gang, you know. A lot of those, you know, you go through those caves and some of those openings were only three feet tall and they'd go in there with their pick- pickaxes and shovels and widen it to ten feet, you know. Uh, Columbus-Belmont State Park, Cumberland Falls, I was down there a few years back, General Butler State Resort Park, Natural Bridge, Pine Mountain. They built the roads, the shelters, the bathhouses, the changing cabins, and they were required to use local materials. Up in Pennsylvania, they used River Rock and Michigan Fieldstone. Over in Indiana... Limestone, you know, down here in Kentucky, they used all three, you know, whatever was available. And they quarried the stone, and they cut down the trees, they debarked the trees, and they would haul them over, but they worked with local experienced men. These were stonemasons, carpenters, bricklayers, electricians, plumbers. You just don't give a blueprint to a bunch of 20-year-olds from Louisville out there and say, okay, build this shelter. No. And they paid these local experienced men $40 a month, and they lived outside of the camps and came into camp to work with the men. So next time you're at a state park, look at those beams. Sometimes you'll see the axe marks. Those are hand-hewn beams. Somebody took a broad axe, turned the round log into a squared-off beam. You don't teach that to an 18-year-old. Those are old lumberjacks, out of work, desperate, gave them a new lease on life. Okay? And you see that stonework. The Sisi boys quarried the stone, they shaped and faced it, but they put it in the hands of an old world stonemason. In my book, I tell the story of how the Sisi boy shaped and faced a stone. He put it in the hands of Mr. Koski, who was a Finnish immigrant. It's perfect, Mr. Koski. He took the stone. He tapped it very gently with his hammer. Now it's perfect. It's not perfect till I say it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> You better believe they had adult supervision building those, those buildings. And next time you go in a shelter, look at the lighting fixtures. They had a, a blacksmith shop in every camp with a blacksmith. And those are all original. No two camps had the same blacksmith, okay? And the door hardware, that's all original. And they had a carpentry shop. They built the picnic tables, the benches, the park furniture, the signage. Everything was built in the camp. They built the bubblers, those are the water fountains, the hiking trails, the lookouts. What a great legacy they gave us. And they used those local materials, and they built those, they built those with the idea of, of having to integrate with the land itself. So if they built a hiking trail, they went around the tree instead of cutting it down. If they built a parking lot, they would work with the contour of the land. That's why when you go to these parks, they're so wonderfully designed. They all had to have approval from Washington, from the National Park Service. The C's also built over 1,800 miles of roads in Kentucky. A lot of those were mountain roads, blazed out of woods because they had to get to the forest fires. But a lot of those roads were wagon trails that they upgraded to roads. Remember, we were transitioning from wagons to cars in the 1930s. What does that mean? Well, they bring in a road grader, they're gonna widen it by double, they're gonna put ditches on both sides, and they're gonna put crushed gravel on it and roll it and pack it down. They upgraded roads. They put in over 1,500 miles of telephone poles. You know, only 6% of rural Kentucky had electricity in 1933. One out of 20 people. Who out there grew up with kerosene lamps? Anybody? Yes. you know what I'm talking about. Imagine a little boy. Mommy, why are they putting that pole out there by the road? Mommy, why are they putting a wire to our house for? Come on, Jimmy, climb up on the chair, pull the string, light. What a wonderful thing. That's how the seas won over the locals, building roads, bringing electricity. A fellow in Nebraska told me that his father was wiring the homes. That's right. They wired the homes for free. And they told the woman, we'll be back this afternoon to turn on the juice. When they got back that afternoon, she put bowls underneath all the light sockets (laughs) to capture the juice. Yeah. Pretty primitive. The Seas fought a lot of fires. And you may think, well, we're here in Kentucky. We don't have a lot of fires. Well, you know what? In the Depression, people were starting fires because the county was paying you 15 cents an hour to fight that fire that you started yesterday. You see, they had hungry children to feed. So what do you do? You go out and start a forest fire. It was a real problem. When the seas came, they stopped hiring the locals to fight those fires. That's another reason the locals hated the seas. It took away their work. In fighting fires, we need to show the video, is, is no easy work. My oldest boy started a fire when he was six years old took me an hour or two to put it out. It was a grass fire, and it was just spreading and spreading. Not a big deal, but, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty awful work. Your eyes are burning. You can't breathe. They would go off for days. And they also planted millions of trees. You've heard of the Cumberland National Forest? You know, planting trees on these mountainsides, that's hard work. You know, climb up and down those hills. And they'd plant 1,000 or 2,000 trees a day. I'm going to sing a quick song here first, okay, Leslie? Okay. You're going to see in the video, them planting trees. That was the first film that I found that got me excited about this. Now, when you join the CCCs, one of your jobs is planting trees. If that's not the kind of work you desire, you can take a shovel and fight forest fires. Where well, they drive us to some barren land, they give us seedlings to plant by hand. We stick a spud bar in the ground, pull it back to make a hole that's round. Take the tree, put the roots right in, stamp it down, and then you do it again. To make it all a bit more fun, we have a tree planting contest that starts with a gun. Bang! Boys, as far as the eyes can see, take two steps and they bend to their knees. Each one plants a couple thousand a day, a tree plantation that's here to stay. Well, your back's getting sore as over you lean. Your crew chief's getting ornery and mean. Just about the time that you expire, they say, boys, tomorrow, you're fighting forest fires. Well, why why does it have to be me to plant these trees for humanity? Only thing that could be much worse is to fight a forest fire first. Well, they put a shovel in your hand. You run through smoke, start shoveling sand. Your eyes get teary as you lean down to dig. Your nose starts a burning and you stink like a pig. We're told to build a fire break. We chop down trees and then use rakes. We clear debris from that trail. We stop that fire without fail. Well, we pray for rain to take us from this hell, go back to camp, try to wash away the smell. Next day at dawn, we wake to Reveille. They say, boys, today you're going to plant some trees. Well, why, why does it have to be me to plant these trees for humanity? Only thing that could be much worse is to fight a forest fire first. Pass the shovel. What you're going to see in a moment is a camp, one of the very few remaining camps in Western Upper Peninsula of Michigan. These are army camps. These are uh, tar paper-sided houses. They were manufactured. They put them on trucks and trains, and they brought them out. You had four or five long, narrow bunkhouses with 40 or 50 cots. The men had a cot and a, and a footlocker. There was an officer's quarters, a mess hall. You had an equipment building with hundreds of axes and rakes and shovels. A supply building with bedding and uniforms. You had a recreation building with a pool table and ping pong table. Look at the picture out there from Hartford camp, you'll see. There was a library, education building where they took classes in the evening. You had a water tower, and there was a building with a generator a blacksmith shop, a carpentry shop. You had two dozen buildings. These were self-sufficient camps. Well, i tell you how much I, I enjoy firefighting. I never worked so hard in my life. First of all, your feet are always burning. You got, your hands are always hot. Your throat is burning with smoke. You stink like a pig. Your clothes always got singed. When I see these forest fires and movies nowadays and all that they I have they have equipment to fight fires. We have a shovel. Get up in the morning out of your warm bed getting that cold air to go out there to the back house to wash up. I couldn't get a to that. you went on the project, you wasn't allowed to build a fire until you started to work an hour after you started to work. Then you built a fire. That was the most difficult thing that ever happened to me. Then I realized I wasn't home. <laughs> that I'll do the CC camp. You use what you call a spud bar, and you jab that into the ground, you pulled it back, jabbed it down again, and pulled it back again, nice little square hole. You grab the tree, you snap the roots down, push the roots on down, pull the bar out, jammed it back about an inch back, pulled it on and and Push it forward. It was hard on those kids in Detroit that had never done any uh, real physical work, but it made men out. And we get up in the morning, go get our axes, they, was, they were sharp. New hands, no slivers. And uh, I can remember, I would always try to get my own axe, number 17. You didn't know what one you was going to get, because he just passed him out in the morning when you went to get on the 40 truck to go to the woods. But I'd always say, number 17, Izzy, and I'd, I'd get my 17 if nobody else had got first. I'll tell you, it was, it's, it's a lot of fun to work in the woods, because you uh, just uh, you can see, you see that you've done something. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, Did you see them cutting down those trees? That was called TSI, Timber Sand Improvement. I failed to mention they did a lot of that work in Kentucky. They go into the woods, they clear out dead trees, junk trees, clear out power lines. And that was kind of a staged picture because they were literally cutting every tree in sight, okay? (laughs) They were clear-cutting that. But uh, the work was hard. You know, they had a ruling camp. You didn't have to work if it was 20 below zero. But some of the guys told me our thermometers were rigged. We didn't get a day off that whole winter. Fighting fires, hot, miserable work, working in the heat, working up in the mountains. Why'd they stick it out? They were free to go home. Remember, you volunteered. If you wanted to leave, you turned in your uniform and mess kit, stick your thumb out and hit you right home. And some of them did. Two to five percent of them, they missed their mothers or they couldn't take the hard work. Why do they stick it out, those other 95 percent? Because a lot of these guys were young, a lot of 15 and 16-year-olds in the seas. They lied about their ages. They used their brother's driver's license. A woman in Nebraska said her 14-year-old brother was in the seas. Oh, how did he get in? Oh, my mother lied about his age. Yeah. Why'd they stick it out? Because the money was going home to feed their brothers and sisters. It was love. It took me several years to figure this out. That's why they stuck it out. They would get letters from home. In my book, I tell the story how a fellow walked into the bunkhouse. His Mexican buddy, uh, Jose, 20-year-old, is sitting on his cot crying. Think about that, a 20-year-old crying. What are you crying for? And Jose sniffles, motions his head. There's a letter from home. Oh, you want me to read it? So he picks it up. It says, Dear Jose, we're so proud of you and the fine job you're doing. Your last paycheck bought us lots of good food like beans, cornmeal, and sugar. The pantry is so full you wouldn't recognize it. Mama spends a lot of time in the kitchen singing. She's so happy. There was enough money left over from your last check to buy your sister a new Easter dress, a pair of shoes, and an Easter bonnet. I wish you could have seen how pretty she looked at church. We thought of you that day. I'm going to skip ahead. He's trying to guess why he's crying. Oh, I know why you're so unhappy. There wasn't enough money for your parents to buy anything nice for themselves. Jose nodded. You see, every month he got a letter from home that said this brother got a treat, this sister got a treat. He wanted his parents to have a treat, something other than flour and sugar. That's why they stuck it out. The other reason they stuck it out was a good food. The average sea weighed 137 pounds. Think about that. Their average age was 18 and a half. So, you know, these are hungry teenagers. They need food. And you got all you wanted to eat. For breakfast, pancakes, chipped beef on toast, scrambled eggs with chunks of, of pork, cereal, toast. For lunch, you saw them eating the, the army stew, three, four leftover meats with root vegetables. Fill up your mess kit twice. Fresh baked bread sliced two inches thick with real butter, cookies, oatmeal, ginger, molasses, cookies. The average sea put on 18 to 22 pounds in one year, and that was muscle. For dinner, corned beef, pot roast, meatloaf, lamb, fried chicken. It was meat, potatoes, and gravy, served American style. And every camp had its own baker, pudding, pie, cake, cookies. I used to ask these guys, what was your favorite dinner? Oh, Virginia baked ham. I had never had that in my life. It was so good. What was your favorite dessert? Oh, we used to have these chocolate cream puffs. They were so fluffy and so good. They would get misty-eyed talking about the food. You know, it was not gourmet. And you had some skimming off the top by the cooks. You know, at the end of the month, you might have hot dogs three days in a row or beans for a week. And they'd go on strike. I heard a few of those cases. You know, I don't want to paint too Beautiful picture here. But uh, generally speaking, the food was good. It was plentiful. One fellow told me, he said, I felt like shouting hallelujah every time I walked into the mess hall. I said, that sounds like a song to me. (laughs) I just remember one fellow told me, he said, this was an Appalachia uh, in, in North Carolina last spring. The sergeant went to town and he hired a baker, and this woman was making biscuits. And the men were complaining to the sergeant, "What are the black specks in our, our biscuits, Sarge? We can't figure it out." So the sergeant peeked in the back door and watched this baker as she was rolling the dough, you know, making the biscuits. He noticed every couple minutes she stopped and she adjusted her toothpick. She was chewing tobacco. <laughs> The food was good, it was plentiful, but there were surprises. The chorus goes, if my stomach could talk, it would shout, hallelujah. Do they have permission to shout hallelujah, Leslie? Let's hear a hallelujah. Come on. Hallelujah. Away back in the Great Depression, my stomach was in a mild recession. Folks were poor, people were hungry, couldn't get work all over the country. Well, Franklin D Bill for you and me some work camps called the CCC, put us to work, fed our bellies with lots of food like bread and jelly. Here we go. If my stomach could talk, it would shout hallelujah. If you ask me to walk, I'm going to come running right to you, cause it's chow time. Goose eggs, duck eggs, hot on the griddle. What the farmer brings is always a riddle. We eat what's put in front of our face. It's chow time, give me a taste. Corn beef, roast beef, smothered and gravy. Lots of them, long and wavy. Turkey at Christmas, filled with stuffing. Apple pie, hot from the oven. If my stomach, if my stomach could talk, it would shout hallelujah. If you ask me to walk, I'm going to come running. Right to ya, cause it's chow time. I hear some stomachs growling out there. Lunchtime's right around the corner. Thank you. I'm sorry, I got a little distracted. There was something going on outside the window out there on my table. and Anyway, <laughs> I was like, just... Keep your mind on the song, Bill. Uh, There was a saying in camp, life began at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That's when the trucks rolled into camp. And they had about an hour and a half before supper. They went to baseball, boxing, they had sports teams. Play a game of horseshoes with your buddies. Go up to the rec building, shoot some pool, play some ping pong. Uh, They had a library in every camp. One fellow said, I read every Western novel in that library. Um, They played chess and checkers. They had a canteen. Go get a candy bar and a Pepsi-Cola for a nickel. Buy some stationery. Write a letter to your girlfriend. And if you didn't want to write a letter, somebody would for a dime. You see, a lot of guys had angles for making money. And one fellow in my video uh, tells a story how he had beautiful penmanship. He wrote love letters for 10 cents. And one time he wrote the same love letter to three different girls who lived in the same town. And they were best friends. <laughs> it didn't turn out so good. Uh, you could get a haircut for a dime. Um, there were pe- artists who would paint your foot locker for, for 15 cents. Uh, guys handy with a needle and thread, that would hem your pants for a dime. Um, some of the guys worked with local farmers on the weekends to earn a little extra money. Washing dishes in town on the weekends. Everybody had an angle for making money. It seems. Uh, One fellow was very creative. He built a beehive out of wood, and he had a little sliding door that you could peek inside for a nickel. And the sign said "Rare albino bees." He had carved out all these letter B's and painted them white. Okay. (laughs) Here's my nickel, Joey. Oh, those are pretty nice bees. Oh, (laughs) yeah. A lot of. A lot of tomfoolery, a lot of joking around in those camps. If they found out you were afraid of snakes, they would take a cucumber, dip it in water, and put it under your sheets of your bed. So you slide your foot down there at night. Whoa. If you went to bed early, they would wake you up one minute before lights out. Joey, wake up, man. You overslept. Huh, what? Pull on your pants, button your shirt, and click. The lights would go out, you know. Wild goose chases for the city boys. They'd send them looking for pole stretchers, uh, striped paint, left-handed monkey wrenches, you know. Uh, they'd go from building to building for hours on end. And every camp had mascots. They would find animals in the woods, crows, flying squirrels. I've seen them all, deer, fox, bear. They'd bring in these little critters. My favorite story is Pete the Deer. They found a big buck up in Three Lakes, Ohio, uh, Wisconsin and the doctors set the leg, they created a harness to hold it off the ground, and they nursed it back to health. And after four or five weeks, they let Pete go, but Pete wouldn't leave camp. He ran around, wagging its tail like a dog, jumping up on its hind legs. He would go up to the kitchen every night, clack its hooves on the steps, demanding his evening supper. And on warm summer nights, Pete the deer would push his way in through the screen door of the bunkhouses, and go from bed to bed. And if your feet were sticking off him under the blanket, he would lick your toes. (laughs) Yes, stop licking my feet. One fellow said, we had a deer in our camp. He had his own cot. (laughs) Now in the evening, they left their uniforms on and they went up to class. From seven to nine, they kept them very busy. About 20% of these young men earned their eighth grade diplomas. They brought in unemployed teachers and they earned Math and English, history, geography. And they also brought in these local experienced men to teach carpentry, welding, engine repair, typing. You'd have a list of things to choose from in the evening. And they also had a ham radio club, a photography club, a string band, and a camp newspaper. So when I met these guys, it was like high school, army, college all wrapped up into one. And every newspaper had a humor section, and a lot of the humor was around girls. Here's typical CCC humor. A lot of auto wrecks result from the driver hugging the wrong curve. You know? This is one of my favorites. It's one for the farmers out there. A city girl staying in the country became friendly with a young farmer. One evening, as they were strolling across a field, they saw a cow and her calf rubbing noses in an affectionate fashion. Ah, sighed the farmer, that makes me want to do the same. Well, why not, said the girl. It's your cow, isn't it? <laughs> now, Saturday morning, they had camp cleanup. And At 11 a.m., they had inspection. And from 12 noon Saturday until 10 o'clock Sunday, they could go into town. Now... Half the camps were located out in the boondocks, and half of them were located close to town. Like Owensboro here, it was a half mile out of town. You'd walk into town, go to the billiard halls, the bowling alleys, roller skating rink, uh, the, the movie theater, matinee, the soda fountains. Oh, boy, and they loved to date the girls. And the girls liked to date them. You see, a lot of the fathers told their daughters, stay away from those CC boys. Well, what happens when you tell your daughter to stay away from someone? They go right to them. One fellow told me, he said, you'd be sitting in a movie theater, they'd be kicking on the back of your chair. Hey, guys, want to share our popcorn with us? You know? Another uh, woman told me, she said, when she was 15 and 16, all her girlfriends would go to the movies Saturday night and stand on the sidewalk and wait for the Cs to drive up in their trucks. And then we would pair up with them on the sidewalk and go into the movie and hold their hands. I said, that's it? Yeah, they just wanted to hold our hands, and we did too they made themselves available. Many of them met their wives. Amazing stories. A woman told me that her father would telephone home to Clinton, Indiana every weekend and he loved the voice of the operator. And he told his bunkmates, I love that voice. I'm gonna find that voice. I'm gonna marry that voice. Well, one night he's at a party, at a dance. He hears the voice. The voice has a boyfriend. He taps the boyfriend on the shoulder, bug out buddy, I'm gonna marry that voice. And he did, you know? A woman told me that her mother was in a community swimming pool with her girlfriend and there was a CC boy drying himself on the deck. Her mother turned to her girlfriend, do you dare me, do you dare? Yeah, I dare ya. Her mother started splashing this young man who stands up, jumps into the swimming pool and starts wrestling with her mother. Well, that became her father. That's how her mother met her husband. You know, just crazy stories like that. But not all the C's dated. I never forget, I was on the uh, Indiana-Kentucky border of of Rivertown. Hendersonville, maybe? Henderson? Henderson? Yeah. And this old CC fellow, this is a few years back, I never dated. None of my friends dated any girls. We were too shy. Half of them were too shy. He said they would go to the roller skating rink Saturday night, and for 10 cents, they could go into a room and look through a plate glass window and watch the roller skaters. They were too shy to go on the floor. Just just, oh, look at that one, Joey. Yeah, look at that one over there. They were too shy. So just when you think you've got these guys figured out, you don't. You know, I, wrote it, I read in my letter about the fellow crying when he got letters from home. Well, they cried when they came into camp. the rookies, they missed their mothers. Well, let me tell you something else, young man. There were two pair of boxing gloves in every bunkhouse. And if two guys were arguing a lot, the barracks leader would say, OK, that's enough. We're going to have a grudge match. And they took down those boxing gloves and laced them up. They'd go outside, they'd make a circle around them, and those men would box until one of them hit the ground. They were tough, but they were soft inside. These are our forefathers we're talking about, our grandparents, yes. The C's did toughen them up. There were five reasons why the C's were successful. Number one, food. When you're a teenager and you're hungry, you're ornery. These young men needed food. They got three meals a day, all you could eat. Number two, hard work. A lot of the city boys came with a chip on their shoulder. They were angry, bitter. You know, all they knew was a depression. Think about that. Hunger, no work, no money. What do you do? Give them a shovel. Give them an axe. Work that negative energy out of them. Get that energy out. It taught them how to work in the heat and the cold and fighting fires. Number three, eight hours of sleep. A lot of these guys were sleeping under bridges. You know, they were were homeless. They were up all hours of the night. It quieted them down brought order, discipline to their life. When they hit the hay at 10 o'clock, they did not ask them twice to go to bed. They were out. Number four, role models. I tell a lot of these stories in my book. The barracks leaders, the educational advisor, these World War I officers like your dad, they took them under their wings. They cared about their hygiene. They cared about their safety. They cared about their relationships with girls and wonderful stories. You see, a lot of these fellows had lost their dads in the depression. They had left home looking for work. And so they were raised living on the streets, living with their mothers. Last but not least, you know, when you're broke, you don't feel good about yourself, do you? You can talk, 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 but you don't feel good about yourself. But you put a little jingle in a young man's pocket. He's got something to look forward to. He's got a little self-esteem, some confidence. Feels good about himself. It did a world of good for these young men. When they came into camp, they were slumped shoulder. They were skinny as a rail. Their, their clothes were threadbare. They would throw their clothes away. When they came out of camp, they were 20, 30 pounds heavier. Their shoulders were straight. They had a bounce in their step. They had a certificate in their pocket. They had learned welding or truck driving or engine repair. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. I had many women tell me when their older brothers came home from the seas after one year, they didn't recognize him. Johnny, is that you? They just changed. Their whole demeanor had changed. They believed in themselves and they believed in their country. So many of them had lost confidence in America. It was a transforming effect. And so what was the reward for all this hard work? Four years in the military. What would you do in the seas? I was a truck driver. Now you're an Army truck driver. What would you do in the seas? I was a cook. Now you're an Army cook. What did you do in the seas? I was an engine mechanic. Now you're an army engine mechanic. Yes, they went to the military. They became platoon leaders. They shot up in the ranks. They were battle ready. They were ready to go to war. Yes, now you know the rest of the story, where the greatest generation came from. I'll never forget a gentleman who came up after one of my talks. He gripped my hand with a vice grip. I was a Marine. You know, half the Marines were seas, It's why we won the war. It toughened us up. How many movies has Hollywood made about the seas? Uh, zero. And what did Tom Brokaw write about in that greatest generation? Remember that book? Don't mention that book to the seas. They don't like Brokaw. Just dropped it. It's the greatest untold story in our country's history. And now you know the story. I'll never forget a woman who came up after one of my programs, though. She said, that was a nice program, but you forgot the most important thing they did for our country. (laughs) Oh, really? Yes. The greatest thing the seas did for America. They gave us a lot of great husbands. (laughs) Thank you very much. Any questions out there? Thirty-three to forty-two. It ended with Pearl Harbor. Very good. Well, I know you're hungry, ready to go off to lunch. On the table back here, I've got some books uh, and uh, movies and things. The books are twenty bucks. The videos are twenty bucks. A little brochure on Roosevelt's economic policies for two bucks. I've got some scrapbooks, photo albums. Uh, memorabilia over there on the other table. I'll be around for a few minutes. I can't stay long. I gotta be at Tell City uh, for an early afternoon program. So I've gotta hit the road in the next few minutes. But uh, thank you again so much. And Leslie, thank you for bringing me out. Have a good afternoon, everyone. Thank you.